0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest.
1: Hello and welcome to You're In Good Company, an investing podcast striving to disrupt the norms in the finance industry. I'm Maddie and as always, I'm in very good company with my co-host Sophie. Hello Maddie.
2: How are we today? How are you doing in lockdown?
1: (laughs) We are okay. We're surviving.
2: (laughs) That's good. That's good. Keep the hopes up. Now, on last week's episode, we talked about the importance of investing internationally to diversify your portfolio. But to be fair, we mostly spoke about delving into the U.S. and the U.S. markets and a couple of the other, you know, really big developed markets.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that although we technically spoke international, we didn't really go that broad. (laughs) So (laughs) that is why this week we thought we would bring on an expert who could help us to delve a little more into the benefits and risks of Really investing in some of the, I guess, more developing or exotic countries.
2: Ooh, exotic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could go somewhere exotic right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> but before we start today's episode, we would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respect to the elders, past and present, and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. So Mads, do you yourself invest in emerging markets? And I know we'll go into like the definitions with our guest a little bit later, but let's just say other markets other than maybe the big developed countries for the moment.
1: So I don't, but I think I've definitely been thinking about it. I guess when I was researching for this episode and I was reading sort of some different perspectives and reading up on the benefits, like One thing that I read that I really liked was sort of framing it in the way of like looking at the winners of tomorrow versus the winners of yesterday. And if you really think about like who's going to be successful in the future, well, it's like there's so much potential in economies that are still developing.
2: Yeah, I do. I also kind of think that way you have these big populations coming through and markets developing at a certain rate. So you definitely, I think there's definitely opportunity there. But with that, I'm sure there's also some risk.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think the other thing to sort of take note of is when you look at like the biggest companies, you know, in the US or in Australia, and it's like, well, where are they looking to expand at the moment? Because that's probably where they see the greatest potential for growth. And so many of those companies are focusing their efforts on Asia and China and India in particular. So I guess it's something that this, you know, this episode has really got me thinking about.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, let's learn about it today, yeah. <laughs> keep listening. But one thing we want to just mention before we jump in is that our guest, Lisa, mentions the term FANG, FANG stocks, and we want you to define that quickly so you could be on board with the conversation. Ooh, what's that? In finance, the acronym FANG refers to stocks of the four prominent American technology companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet, which is Google. Yes. Is that right? Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Wait, no, it's Fang as in, oh, sorry, yeah, G for Google, but Alphabet oh. is the actual name.
2: <laughs> and also, yeah, and also in 2017, the Fang actually became like Fang with double A's because <laughs> I think they've added in Apple as yep, well. <laughs> nice.
1: All right, now to jump into our chat with Lisa. Today, we are very excited to be speaking with our first international guest, the most incredible Lisa Diaz. Lisa is experienced, entertaining and full of stories, having spent 23 years as Managing Director of the Securities Division at Goldman Sachs in New York. These days, Lisa is Partner, President and CEO of Prince Street Capital Management in New York, an investment firm focused on global emerging and frontier market equities with bases in Singapore, New York and Hong Kong. Lisa, we are so excited to have you. Welcome to Your Ingo Company. Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
2: Now, Lisa, we're so excited to be speaking with you today. We want to start off with one of the questions we ask all of our guests. What is your morning routine?
0: Well, I get up at 4.50 every day to rush. Oh my goodness. <laughs> to go to row crew. So during COVID, I use this as an opportunity because I wanted to develop a lifelong sport. My cousin um, showed me rowing rowing for the first time in Cambridge when I was in college. I'd never seen it before. And I had this idea that's something that I wanted to do for the next chapter of my life. So it's it was a bit of a challenge. I was the dunce cap rower. However, perseverance, <laughs> commitment, and drinking lots of dirty water. Um, I'm actually very excited to announce that I'm going to be rowing in Head of the Charles, which is the most famous um, U.S. rowing group with my friends, the Forever Young Women, and the average age in our boat (laughs) is 71.
1: Oh, that is so impressive. Rowing is not an easy sport. (laughs) Well, and at the rowing group,
0: there's another man I see rowing every morning. He's 92 and has a Holocaust survivor. Wow. So I've now decided I can work for at least 25 to 30 years, um, and I'm just going (laughs) to keep rowing. So this is a... uh, uh, marketing endeavor. Um, as you looked ahead, I'm a fourth generation working mother. I have two children, two girls, who I'm grooming to be CEOs of companies. And one of the things I did is looked out and say, "Who do I want to be when I grow up?" And I saw out of my my parents and my in laws. My my father in law is a very big golfer, and I said, "I want to have a sport that I can do into." my eighties and into my nineties. And I found rowing and I really, really like it. It's hard at first, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, do okay in head of the Charles. And regardless, I feel a lot fitter. I feel a lot more energized and I feel a lot calmer because I think sports are very good for like mental, um, endurance and also, um, helping you to kind of pace yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do think golf might be a slightly easier option than rowing, but I love your attitude. So Lisa, who or what influenced you to invest? When I was 14 years
0: old, I used to work at a place called Robert's Toy Town. And I would go and put my money and literally the bank account where they had, they wrote it in. And I saw I was getting a very poor rate of return. And I always, from an early age, I said, I want my money to work for me. So I come from a family of lawyers, except there was my Uncle Jimmy, my beloved Uncle Jimmy, and Uncle Jimmy was an investor. And he said, Lisa, do you want to invest in stocks? I'm like, Uncle Jimmy, how does one invest in stocks? How do you go about doing it? (laughs) So here's what my Uncle Jimmy taught me. He said, you find an idea that you like. You think it makes sense. You see if they have good marketing and you do a test to see if they're going to take care of your money, take care of your investments. So when I was 14, I decided that I wanted to buy Dunkin' Donuts, which is now called Dunkin' because I like the Dunkin' Munchkins. So that was check the box number one. The second thing is they had great advertising. There was this guy who used to say, I'm making the donuts and I I just like their marketing and I like their colors. They're very bright colors. They're pink and orange. And so that appealed to me. The piece resistance was my uncle Jimmy told me they owned all the real estate at the time. So I thought that was a really good idea because their rent couldn't go up and if they couldn't sell donuts, they still have the value of their, their uh, real estate. Anyway, so with my first stock and I ended up doing extremely well for my first stock and I was sold ever since then. So anytime that I feel under pressure or I'm, I'm not feeling happy at my times at Goldman Sachs, what I do to restore myself and to make myself happy, I look for an investment idea. And when I find a great investment idea, it's like growing. It makes me energized. It makes me happy. It gets my synapses moving. And I love the art of investment. It's just incredibly interesting. It's a big puzzle. There's psychology. There's finance. And it's what I like
2: to do. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy and something that people should follow when they're making investment decisions. Now, in one minute or less, if you could be a stock or a company, who would you be and why?
0: If I could be a stock, I would be Sidelab, which is traded in China. It was uh, founded by a very powerful, impressive woman investor called Samantha Du. Um, She started the company in 2012. It went public in 2017 for an equity value of a billion dollars. And now it's worth $15 billion. Wow. (laughs) What I love about this company is not only run by a woman, it's a company of purpose. About 90% of um, their products are, are geared towards oncology. So she's literally saving people's lives, making a difference, and having true impact. So and on top of that, Samantha Dew is a great friend and a great mother. Um, she's a fellow Tiger mom, and I'm still so impressed that every two weeks she's able to check in on the math tutor to make sure her son is studying appropriately um, and delivering on the goods. So for me, Samantha Dew and Zylab um, is most reflective of who I would like to be if I was
1: a stock. Fantastic. Well. Lisa, we have spoken a lot recently on the episode about the benefits of diversification and looking beyond just your own country. You know, Australia makes up such a small portion of the global market. So we really have been trying to focus on how we can diversify and get exposure to other countries. Now, your firm focuses on global emerging and frontier market equities. So, Lisa, can you just give us a bit of a breakdown? What actually are emerging markets?
0: Yes, emerging markets is a um, phrase coined by Antoine Van Ackmo in the late 1980s. Um, And it was talking about a market that is not fully um, meeting the standards of developed markets in terms of regulations, in terms of disclosure. And the thought process was these are markets which have faster rates of population growth, economic growth, and also much higher discovery value because there are fewer people um, assessing them and doing the deep dive and analytics because clearly it's much harder to go to some of these exotic locations than to invest in our own local markets. The term frontier markets is used for developing countries with even a smaller, riskier, more illiquid capital markets. So as you move along the spectrum of risk, um, so developed markets are seen as the least risky the most transparent, the most highly regulated, and also the most well-known and researched. You moved into emerging markets. It's kind of a mid-level scenario. And the frontier markets are the most exotic um, and probably most off the sort of the standard investment criteria of most investors around the world.
1: I just love referring to investing as exotic.
0: Well, emerging markets are definitely exotic. That's one of the reasons I like them. Um, so you get to um, travel to very interesting places like Egypt, like Argentina, like Sri Lanka, like Russia. Um, and I've always had a big travel bug. So um, when I started my career, I was looking for the nexus between business and politics. And that's how I found myself in emerging and frontier markets. So for those who are travel bugs or who wanted to be what's the word, CIA agents or more <laughs> diplomats, emerging markets probably is uh, entertaining.
1: So I guess really broadly speaking, because every country does have its own sort of unique risks, but what are the risks involved with frontier and emerging market investing?
0: Well, first of all, it's, um, the biggest issue has been one of really corporate governance as you're investing in more developed markets, they have more regulatory scrutiny. Um, we in the U.S. Um, have the SEC. Um, we, as a firm, are regulated by um, a variety of different entities. In emerging markets, it's more of the you know it's more the wild, wild rust. It's more um, the frontier for lack of it, it captures it. <laughs> I remember when I went to Thailand many moons ago to go to the stock market. There are basically all these people standing around and they had a chalkboard and they were like doing with chalk, changing the prices of the different stocks. You know, clearly everything, like 80% of the transactions in the U.S. are electronic. There aren't people involved. There's like a a scrutiny across the board. Emerging markets have have clearly um, changed since my early days in Thailand. But they're not as, similar. I was going to say, how long ago were you in Thailand when I saw this? That was in like in the late eighties. Okay. That's okay. I was worried it was a couple of no, years no, ago. No, 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 no. This is like in the early days. So, so the idea behind it is as, as markets have become more sophisticated, as there's been more liquidity, you know, it's, it's technology is a much bigger part of the process and it's just an evolutionary dynamic.
1: I guess as well in a lot of those countries, like the financial reporting requirements wouldn't be as strict as...
0: No, the financial reporting requirements are not the same. The corporate governance is not the same. You don't have the same scrutiny. So, one of the benefits that we have at Prince Street Capital Management is David Halpert, um, the portfolio manager and founder, has been at this for 30 years. So, He's he and the team are very battle-tested. They've seen devaluations. They've seen things go wrong. And they know kind of the tea leaves before they happen because history is the best, um, I think, judge of the future and is the best teacher. So if you want to invest in emerging markets, it's kind of a little bit like Indiana Jones sometimes in the, the less sophisticated frontier markets. You need to have somebody who's so local. You need to have someone who understands um, what can go wrong. And you need to have someone who speaks the languages, who has visited there, who's kicked the tires. And also it's really important to understand the family. So like in India, for example, it, you have to know like, who can you trust and who can you not trust? That's just in India, across the emerging markets world. But because there's not as high a level of regulatory scrutiny, um, you need to be an informed investor or all that glitters is not gold.
2: So if it is so risky to invest in these spaces and you, you, know, you do need to have a bit more knowledge than investing in some of the more developed markets, why do people invest in frontier markets?
0: Well, I mean, it's risk versus return, right? So, when you talked about portfolio diversification, right? So, the whole idea and philosophy about portfolio diversification is you want to have um, uncorrelated rates of return, you want to have discovery value. So, for example, if everybody's invested in the same stocks and the same names, When the stocks are all working, it's great. But when it goes the other direction, when there's a crash, when the, when there's a, um, a change or a pivot, it can be a very painful experience. So like one of the things when we look at our print street, our portfolio and how we do our portfolio construction, we have very different, differentiated names in our portfolio. So for example, this MSCI emerging markets index, which is our benchmark. We only have about an 8% overlap. So we're able to find stocks that are outside the benchmark that are differentiated. And actually, they're not risky. These are companies that because of the power of Samantha Dew and people like that to the emerging margins, naturally champions, they are able to deliver rates of return despite their macro environment in a country. So for example, last year, two emerging markets, which had, you know, They didn't have a great performance. Both Brazil and Greece. We had huge rates of return because of our stock selection and our stock picking. So our view at Prince Street is it's actually more important to find the sector and the company who's going to be able to deliver rates of return. And I, you know, when you say risky, yeah, I mean, like when you say risky, I mean, I had the great pleasure of starting to work on October first, nineteen eighty-seven. That was riskless and in. In simply a day, it became very risky. I watched a series of stock market dislocations in the U.S. during my career, and that's just the nature of the beast. And what you really want to have is diversification. You want to have off benchmarks, in my opinion, types of names in your portfolio, which which are going to be outside the flow of some of the big market dislocations, because everything tends to move in tandem.
2: Yeah, it was actually when I was doing some research um, for this episode, I was reading about some of the markets and I I saw Vietnam as one of them. And, you know, over over the past decade, it's risen overall, but in one year, it jumped 48% and in another year, it dropped 27%, which is like huge changes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but so my husband's from Argentina, right? So Argentina at the turn of the century used to be the fifth greatest economic power in the world. That is no longer the case. During the 29 years of my marriage, I've seen multiple devaluations. Um, it's a challenging political environment. And one of our best positions is a company called Mercado Libre, which is kind of like Amazon meets PayPal. Despite the challenges of Argentina, this stock has consistently outperformed because the power of the management team, the power of what they're able to deliver is able to supersede and be more important than the macro politics of Argentina. Those are the types of investments that we look for at Prince Street. So I, I hope and pray that Argentina um, gets on the right path politically. I've been watching it for 30 years and I haven't seen that happen, but I have seen Mercado Libre deliver better quality goods and services for people within Argentina and, and, and uh, less of parts of Latin America but it's also delivered incredible investment returns. So in emerging markets in particular, we think it's really important to figure out how do you invest with the best national champions who are able to solve problems and improve quality of life for people within the emerging markets. So like another stock idea, there's a a company called Bank Jago in Indonesia. And Indonesia has 270 million people. There's 87 million people who don't have a bank account. That's a great opportunity for a digital bank solution that can help them. And again, you sort of think through like people want to transact, people want to have bank accounts. So and the opportunity to be um, on the cutting edge to take those 87 million people, you first you get them a bank account. And guess what? Then you're going to sell them all sorts of goods and services. So we don't think that's risky. We think that smells of great opportunity to actually have positive impact to deliver goods and services that consumers want around the world and also to deliver investment returns. And that's our whole thinking and our philosophy.
1: So, Lisa, I am interested to know how you and I guess Prince Street more broadly are really looking at some of the current trends that we're seeing in emerging markets. Is there anything that's sort of really sticking out to you in particular at the moment?
0: So, we're very interested in the healthcare trend. We think that around the world, um, delivery of healthcare services is a key um, objective of governments. It's part of the whole idea of social contracts. So, you want to be having health and wellness. So the way that we make our investments in healthcare, just starting with China, for example, um, we do an analysis of a sector. So for example, um, in China, about 5% of GDP is dedicated to healthcare. In comparison, the number in the U.S. is 20%. Um, we think over the next decade, that number will increase from five to 8%, which will implies $7 trillion, $7 trillion of incremental spend. Last year, um, our portfolio was very geared towards telemedicine, and this year, one of the objectives of the Communist Party is about um, common um, prosperity, and we've had healthcare is a big part of it. So we've geared our portfolio much more towards diagnostics, and we talked about oncology. In China, for example, if you're diagnosed with cancer, only 40% of the people live five years or longer. The same number in the U.S. is is almost 70%. So it means that people are dying unnecessarily because they're not getting the right type of drugs and treatment. So we think that there is going to be a focus on diagnostics in particular. So that's a sector that we're very excited about. And we've seen that um, opportunities to make that same sort of investment around the emerging markets world. Another big sector that we're focusing on is the whole energy transition on a global basis, including in my own country. Finally, we've embraced moving towards um, thinking about that. It's important to have a greener, cleaner environment. And we're finding ways to invest in that around the emerging markets world. And then we continue to be very big fans of digital banking. I mentioned Indonesia and the underbanked population, Um, that's not just Indonesia, it's happening in places like Egypt, it's happening in places throughout Africa. And so we think that's a big secular trend.
2: We are just going to take a quick break for our sponsors and we will be right back to keep chatting with Lisa.
0: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: So Lisa, you've mentioned a couple of trends that you uh, and your firm have been looking at. Do you think that any of these trends have been exacerbated by covid Actually what
0: we've found is that COVID has been an accelerator of some of the the digital trends that we're that we've seen around the world. So I think all of us in the in the lines of COVID, if you before used to go to the grocery store, guess what? You're a big fan of e commerce and it's e commerce for Amazon in the US, but it's it's the same thing that's gone around the emerging markets world and people have done it for the first time because of COVID, and guess what? The more you do e-commerce, the more you have a better um, skew of products, you're going to move forward. Secondly, telemedicine. I mean, outside of China, I mean, I can only speak about my own country. It was not a common thing to have a telemedicine appointment. Actually, I personally never had a telemedicine appointment in my life. And then all of a sudden with COVID, people had a very high comfort level around the world using telemedicine, which again, hasn't happened before. Then you talk about financial transactions again. Before people would go to their local bank and now using computers, using technology. And there's been studies that have happened all over the world and they all confirm the same dynamic that technology adoption has actually been enhanced by COVID. And you've seen a step function in terms of adoption of technology because mother is, you know, necessity is the mother of adventure. Um, and for example, like my mother never used, there's a company (laughs) called Fresh Direct. And frankly, in the beginning of COVID, you can guess who was going to the grocery store for their mother. Okay. We know the answer. My daughter happens (laughs) to work for a e-commerce company in the U.S. called Fresh Direct. And she taught grandma how to, you know, go online, what to order. And now my mother buys everything online. And I think she's probably even better at it than I am. So- that's all because of necessity. And actually, it's been a better customer experience for her.
2: Now, we wanted to know because uh, you work for a firm that does look at the emerging market space and history has shown that capital flows into emerging markets. Um, it typically accelerates following global recessions. How is Prince looking at the space and is now a good time to be thinking about adding exposure to your portfolio?
0: Yes, We think it's a very interesting moment in emerging markets history. And basically, that's because of a new framework um, we call digital decolonization. This is a new analytical framework, which has been coined by David Halpert, who is a CIO and founder of Prince Street Capital Markets. And the thesis behind it is basically there's about four and a half billion people around the world who are using the internet, about 6% of them in the U.S. However, the percentage of market cap has accrued to the U.S. markets, known as Silicon Valley. David believes that increasingly, as a result of Donald Trump's decision to walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which protected U.S. digital um, e-commerce rights around the world, um, the genie was out of the bottle. And increasingly, local economies decided that this was an opportunity to take back their local digital economy and digital ecosystems and benefit from the opportunities that they saw in their own markets. And the inspiration for David was a personal investment in a company called GoJack. David invested back in 2014, and it was a radical idea at the time. It was a combination of Uber except on mopeds, which were more appropriate for the market of Indonesia. And it grew into being um, a combat, a super app offering um, delivery services, delivering payment services. And there are many opportunities for, um, others to break into the market. Uber was pretty aggressive in Indonesia. And then Jack Ma of Alibaba fame offered to buy out, um, the company, which was founded by a guy called Nadine Rakrum. And much to David's surprise, Nadine said, no, thank you. And the reason was really the, the catalyst because Nadine said this was not in the best economic interests of my country and for the people of Indonesia. So that was an aha moment for David. And that is a case study in digital decolonization. So what we've done in our portfolios is really look at investing across four sectors, which are healthcare, e-commerce, fintech, and infrastructure to find other Nadines entrepreneurs who come up with new solutions um, to problems in their local indigenous economies. So we feel that this is a new paradigm, a new um, way to look at markets. And it's really taking a view of investing along emerging markets innovation and finding those players who are able to garner local regulatory support, who understand how the local markets work and how products and services, local economy, local people, let, and finally are able to leapfrog and have solutions that work better and have delivered faster growth rates. So that's the types of investments that we're making within the emerging markets. And it's a bit of an aberration from historic focus on really macro economics, because we're very much stock pickers. And David is looking to discover those next generation of companies, kind of like buying Alibaba and Google, in the early days, that's the dream. <laughs>
2: the dream. Well, I feel like that's what Maddie's um, one of Maddie's mottos is when we talk about emerging markets is investing in tomorrow rather than investing yeah. <laughs> in yesterday. Um, but it also seems like what you're looking at is kind of big, broader themes. You know, the e-commerce space, the healthcare space, and that's what a lot of millennial investors are doing at the moment when they invest in ETFs. They're looking at these broader themes, something that really interests them to try and find something disruptive uh, in the investing space.
0: Yes. And one of the opportunities is if you look across the ETF space, there are very few actively managed ETFs um, in emerging markets. Frankly, we sort of struggle to find any big players out there. And that's because this new, um, more thematic approach is is really been coined in very recent history. So we think the forward or the opportunity set is quite large. And as you mentioned, um, the FANGBAT name, so our worth have a market cap of about 64 trillion dollars. And what we perceive to be is these emerging economy or digideck names, it's about 1.1 trillion. So the opportunity from for 6.4 to double versus 1.1 trillion to double, we think it's the law of small numbers are playing in your favor, as there are more and more companies in the emerging markets who are able to look at business models in other parts of the world, import them, configure them in a different way and put their own local spin or patina on them. That's what we see as a great investment opportunity in the emerging markets.
1: Yeah, I think one that came up recently, just in the last week or so, that was really interesting coming out of, or an an announcement coming out of China, was the rideshare app Didi. They IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange just really recently. Not a good outcome. Mm-mm. No, not at all. And China's saying that they're cracking down on companies putting, that are listing their shares abroad and around data security. And, you know, DD's American shares fell 20%, and it took $15 billion off the market value because China said that all, like, the app stores had to remove it from their, from their platforms. It was actually down as much as 28%, which is, is a oh, pretty painful crazy.
0: investment, right? So, like, what are the themes... That is really important. I, I mentioned to you, David um, Halpert, who is the uh, the portfolio manager and founder of Prick Street, he's been doing this for 30 years, and he started as a journalist. And I actually think that's one of the best disciplines um, for a portfolio manager, because he has a great love of politics and geopolitics, but what does a journalist do? A journalist goes to a new place or a new country to find a new story, and when he finds something, he checks his resources. He checks his contacts. And then he'll bring it back to be discovered, to be front page of the news. Well, it's the same thing in the investment process. If you talk to fund managers, they want to find the next Apple, the next Facebook, the next Google. And there's an excitement of the investment process to find and invest alongside of those companies. So going back to my friends at like if how exciting would it have been if when she'd been public in 2017 at a $1 billion market cap, you were an investor. You would have paid 15 times your money and you would have invested in a company that is creating cancer drugs to save lives in China. I can't imagine anything else I would be more inspired to participate in.
2: So Lisa... You said that when you're investing in these markets that you need to have a bit of an understanding of the markets and the people and the companies and what's happening, which makes a lot of sense because we always say, you know, invest in what you know, because if you don't know it, then you're not going to be able to watch it correctly. For people like us, how do we get exposure to markets like this?
0: I think you've got to go with the experts.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> um, this might sound very, but since this is, a, this, is a, this is something that's geared towards women, I hope I'm political politically um correct. So in New York City, there's a magical place and it's called Bergdorf Goodman's. And it's a fantastic department store. I think you have, what's the one in I went to one in in, in Sydney. I forget the name of the famous women's department store.
2: Like Myers or David Jones. David Jones, that's
0: the one. I went to David <laughs> Jones.
2: So at Bergdorf
0: Goodman's, there are these personal shoppers. And they can cherry pick among this magical place, what are the greatest outfits to put you together to make you look great. But someone, they they know the merchandise. They know how to put things together. They have that special, like unique sense about it. Investment is the same thing. So if you're going to say to yourself, I'm going to put together a portfolio, you want to be with someone who's an expert someone who's done this for 30 years, someone who speaks multiple languages, someone who's walked and visited these companies and seen the good and the bad and someone that can check the information. You want an expert. You want someone who can navigate the swings of currency. So for emerging markets, probably more than any other asset class, I think you need to go to an expert someone who is battle tested and knows how to navigate and test what can go right and what can go wrong. Because it's a little bit more complicated than investing in NASDAQ securities or you know, securities on the Aussie market. Investors are, they always think cheapest is better. That's not been my own, I, I tell you with my, you know aside from investing money with Prince Street, I also have my own investments, American investments. And I always found that I, this person who tells me how much they're charging me, it's always much better because you know what exactly you're paying. There's a lot of hidden fees. There's a lot of fees on top of fees on top of fees. So if you have alignments of interest, that's how I, at Lisa invest my own money. I think that if you pay and compensate someone, they're going to give you a better product. They're going to work harder for you. And you, in the end, will have a, they will be a better steward of your capital. That's my own personal investment philosophy. And frankly, you know, I've done okay with my portfolio for a very long time with that investment philosophy of saying, who's a really good investor? Who can manage risk? Who can see the trends before other people? And who is going to be a good steward of my capital? I don't like excessive trading. I like buy and hold. I like concentration. That's how I've invested my money my whole entire career. And I would have the great fortune of investing and working with some of the most famous investors in the world. And what I found is that those talented investors, they had a philosophy of investing and they stuck with it.
1: Yeah, I think we talk a lot about, and we've touched on it even this episode, but investing in the realm of your expertise. And I think it's probably pretty safe to say that for most of us listening today, you know, emerging markets and frontier markets probably isn't within the realm of our expertise. So I think it's a really great point that you raise that it is really worthwhile thinking about if you do want to get access to these markets, you know, how else can you do it in a way that's going to actually really benefit you? So, Lisa, at the end of each episode, we have been asking our guests to add a stock, company, news, trend, industry to our watch list. Now, the purpose of this is to get us thinking outside of the box and broaden our horizons in the investing space. We are absolutely not financial advisors, and this is purely for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. But Lisa, what are you... Don't laugh. (laughs) What are you adding? (laughs) What are you
0: adding to the watch list today? What I'd like to add to the watch list is a company called Ozone, which is a Russian e-commerce player. Russia is a highly fragmented and underpenetrated market. Um, the penetration rates of e-commerce is only 9%. That's compared to 14% in Poland or 24% in China. And there's clearly lots and lots of upside. Um, if you look at the total size of the Russian um, Retail market's about $456 billion, and about $40 billion is done by e-commerce. I would suspect that all of us are very big users of e-commerce. No one comes between me and my Amazon Prime account. <laughs> well, in Russia, it's the same, or we expect the same the dynamic to happen. And one of the things when you look at Ozo, they have a lot... Um, playing in their fairs because they're the local player. So they're going to be more likely to understand how to regulate local markets politically as well as economically. Secondly, they understand what local Russians want. What are the types of products? What are the types of SKUs? And thirdly, they can make sure that products are delivered more fast, faster and more efficient um, than in other, you know, the other foreign competitors will be able to deliver. And they have the benefits of the experience in the rest of the e-commerce community, so they can cherry pick ideas and bring them into the Russian market to accelerate growth. And what we found is the the benefit of the silver lining of COVID is it's really accelerated use of e-commerce um, as uh, around the world. It's no different in Russia. And more and more Russians um, clearly, 9% of them are already involved in the e-commerce um, platform. I think it's pretty easy to see how that number could increase very dramatically um, as Zone Zone is delivering products in a faster, more efficient manner.
2: And it's just easier. Yeah, I love how you mentioned about like they're a local player because I think that's one of the things when you're investing overseas, someone that actually knows their own market. I remember reading a case study of some of the big uh, European supermarkets they tried to break into Russia and they just literally couldn't catch a break because they didn't really understand like what the locals wanted from a supermarket. Um, So it kind of slightly failed. So I think that's kind of a cool thing to be looking at when you're looking at companies that you want to invest in overseas.
0: Yeah, because everybody knows consumption around the world. It's just that little local extra panache or patina that makes it a traffic that makes it different. And when when you visit a foreign country um, that's outside your own, what you're most interested in is that little special unique thing that's just slightly different. Um, And a player like Ozone, Given the fact that they are Russian, they understand the Russian psyche. They understand how to source. They now have a third party um, product restrail and they know what, how to promote their like types of products. They're just in a much more advantageous position than a foreigner would be breaking into that market. I don't know about the rest of you, but I tried to take Russian. It's a very difficult language. Um, So there's a home team advantage um, that Ozone has that other players like Amazon just simply is not going to have within that Russian market. And it is a very large market. Again,
2: $456 billion.
1: Well, you heard it here first, the new Amazon of Russia. (laughs) That's right.
2: Thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was a great conversation and we took a lot out of it. Before we finish up, is there anything that you'd want to plug or where people could find you on social media or LinkedIn? So I would say
0: come and visit the Prince Street Capital Management um, website. Um, my my uh, colleague, my, my partner, I should say my boss. He's my boss. David Halper did a really interesting podcast on equity mates. I would definitely take a listen. Uh, He's a really smart guy. And he's not just smart. He's a really creative thinker. And we've been friends for 30 years. And still, I was like, had you come up with that one? He always impresses me because he's always like four steps ahead. And he's
2: a really good guy. So listen to his podcast. Amazing. (laughs) Lisa, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting soon.
0: We're going to be rowing together soon in Melbourne. (laughs) I'm expecting you to come and cheer me on at
1: the head of the Charles in October. Look, if, if I can be at the head of the Charles in October, I will be there. All right. I got, you got, you <laughs> Thank got you very day. much, Lisa. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.
2: I think some of the conversations that I've been having with some of my friends recently is like investing in this area is probably a little bit easier when you do look at things like ETFs because you're not picking like specific companies.
1: Yeah I mean like we spoke about in the episode like these kind of areas and these regions can be pretty high risk so you really want to have sort of that local knowledge when investing in emerging markets in particular and I know um I personally have invested in the Asia ETF, which is sort of giving me exposure to the broader um, Asia region. But, I mean, Lisa made a really good point on this episode that, like, choosing passive ETFs to get exposure to emerging markets isn't probably the best way to go about it. We talked about whether there were any active ETFs, and obviously, Lisa, being in the US, said that um, over there there aren't any, but we did a bit of research.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's actually one that the Equity Mates guys have spoken about, which is the Fidelity Global Emerging Markets ETF. The ticker is. F E M X, and I was looking into it a little bit, and as you said, it's actively managed. So that means that the fund manager is trying to like outperform the index, which passive uh, ETFs usually follow. And it's quite interesting. Like this one has some of the big companies like Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung, and they put a bit of a focus on you know picking stocks that have really strong corporate governance. And I think that is potentially one of the biggest risks in investing in the emerging markets because you don't necessarily know how the governance is. So I think that's interesting. Like, I think that's not makes you feel safe, but that's one thing I liked about it.
1: I think what we know about this region is because there is more risk associated, like and with those corporate governance issues and things like that, sometimes companies literally do go to zero. So it's really great. Instead of sort of just having that broad passive exposure of following the index, like for example, in Asia or some of the emerging markets, um, sort of more general ETFs having this local knowledge and having those actively managed ETFs can be a real benefit in the space if you are wanting to get that kind of exposure.
2: You've got the expert doing what they do best. (laughs) Exactly
1: right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you have enjoyed our chat with Lisa, our first international guest on the show, she's been very exciting.
2: If you haven't already, make sure that you follow us on Instagram yigc podcast. No, you join always it.
1: get this wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry, you said Instagram. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I so got that right. Thank <laughs> you very
2: much. And I was going to even pass over the Facebook group to you because I always get it wrong.
1: I'm so, so sorry. Maddie, what's what's the Facebook group that people can find us at? <laughs> yogc investing podcast discussion group find us on facebook
2: (laughs) and we will see you or you'll hear from us next week thanks for joining bye you're in good company is a product of equity mates media all information
0: in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only it is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Your are In Good Company are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances.
2: Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice
1: from the podcast.
0: For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional. Near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Your In Good Company acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and
2: community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.